Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Talk organized by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Fauzan Arif Rosli, a research associate at the Institute, and I will be your host and moderator for today. Before you proceed, I would like to apologize beforehand for some background noise that you might hear from my side as there are renovation works happening in my apartment building as we speak. Having said that, I'm sure this minor inconvenience will not distract us from engaging in a robust discussion that we have at hand. Today's book talk centers on Dr. Sumanto Al-Qurtubi's book titled Saudi Arabia and Indonesian Networks, Migration, Education and Islam. Since the 1990s, academics and researchers on Indonesian intellectual history have traced the development of Islamic thought and discourse through personalities, institutions, and social policies. For example, Professor Azumardi Azra, arguably one of, if not the most celebrated scholar on Indonesian Islam today, has written on the networks of Malay, Indonesian, and Middle Eastern ulama or Muslim scholars in the 17th and 18th centuries. Equally important is the work of Mona Abaza, who had researched Indonesian students in Cairo and charted the roles they play in shaping modern Islamic studies in Indonesia. On top of that, Robert Hefner and Yudi Latif have also contributed to the field through their assessment of politics, activism, and Islamic thought in Indonesia. Dr. Sumanto's book, which is the focus of today's book talk, has opened up a new avenue for academic discussion as it examines Indonesian educational migrants and intellectual travelers in Saudi Arabia, including students, researchers, teachers, and scholars, to provide a unique portrait of the religious and intellectual linkages between the two countries. It also identifies the Indonesian legacy in Saudi Arabia and examines how the host country's influential Islamic scholars have impacted Indonesian Muslims. The book sheds light on the dynamic history of Saudi Arabian-Indonesian relations and the intellectual impact of Indonesian migrants in Saudi Arabia. So a word on our speaker and discussion and discuss for today. Dr. Sumanto is no stranger to the Middle East Institute at NUS. In fact, part of the book that we are discussing today was actually written when he was a visiting senior research fellow at the Institute. Dr. Sumanto will later present on this book for about 20 to 25 minutes. Afterwards, Dr. Nur Shahril will provide some insights and perspectives on the book for about 15 to 20 minutes, whereby he will reflect on how Dr. Sumanto's book can be situated into other Southeast Asian contexts before we segue into the question and answer session. So without further ado, I hand over the discussion, sorry, the session to Dr. Sumanto. Dr. Sumanto, please. Okay, Fauzan, thank you so much. I'm going to share my screen first, yeah? Okay, Fauzan, can you see it? Um, yes, yes, up this one too, yes, you can see it. This slide, so, yep. uh, okay, now it's much. Okay, uh, thank you so much, everyone. And thanks um, uh, the Middle East Institute for organizing this um, uh, book talks, which is, I, I, I do really appreciate for this. And, 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 and for me, of course, this is a very important um, talk about um, this. I think this is the, the second or the third uh, book talk about um, my previous books. And before I, I 
I mentioned several things about this book. I think as far as I mentioned before that this book is actually was written, the majority of, of the content of this book was written during my visiting fellowship, um, the Middle East Institute. So this is why I, <clears throat> I dedicated this book to the former director of the Middle East Institute, which is Professor, the late Professor uh, Peter Slaglet, actually, um, um, who was the director at the time, and before Pa Eng Seng, who uh, take his position. And also the book, um, <clears throat> um, I dedicated this book to uh, the late um, um, Professor Augustus Richard Norton, who is also specialist of the Middle East um, studies, just like Professor uh, Peter Slaglet. So <clears throat> thanks again for organizing this, and also thanks again for the Middle East Institute, to, um, to the leadership of the Middle East Institute, like who, uh, uh, Michelle, for example, uh, for example, I, I, I have no idea if Michelle is here or not, and and the, and other leadership and uh, um, staff in the Middle East Institute. So, okay, I'm going to talk about what exactly this book is about. This book is, this is the basically uh, <clears throat> the the key. Um, the key, the key concept, the key uh, themes of focus that that I'm, I uh, for this uh, for this book actually, the first focus of this book is we talk about the, the historical dynamic and <clears throat> contemporary development of the bilateral relations between Saudi Arabia and Indonesia. What I mean by uh, bilateral relations is because because my background was cultural anthropology. My background was politic, uh, not political science. So what I mean by bilateral relations here is people-to-people um, uh, -people relations. It's not about government-to-government -government relations, which is different from political science perspective or from um, um, international relations uh, specialists, for example, which is which more focused on G2G uh, uh, relationships. And, and this book also do not um, doesn't focus on business to business uh, relationship, for example, between Saudi Arabia and Indonesia. So, so um, the focus of this of, of this book is uh, the relationship between people to people. Okay, which is which is which is as I as I said in the in the book, it has a long long history, long long history, and and the book is not only discussed about the previous history of this of this relationship between Indonesia and, and Saudi Arabia, quote by quote, I, I, I wrote quote by, quote by quote because Saudi Arabia was not born yet before 1932 and Indonesia was not born yet before 1945. So um, but, uh, to make it easy, let's see Saudi Arabia and Indonesia. So this is the first, the first theme on the first focus. The second focus of this book is to talk about uh, the complex role of Saudi um, Arabia's Islamic educational institutions, which is what I mean here, educational institution is both formal or informal. A formal, for example, like um, universities, um, Saudi Arabia's uh, universities, for example, or informal, like Mahat, or maybe um, uh, Rubat or Ribat, maybe the Islamic school, which is typical Islamic school for 
um, Islamic studies in, in, in Saudi Arabia, or, or the, the, the institution it could be, is not only in Saudi Arabia, it could be also in, in Jakarta, for example, like um, Libya. Libya is a, um, the Arabic um, studies and Islamic studies institutions in Jakarta has been, has been built, I think was built in 1980 which is this institution was actually a branch of Al-Imam Muhammad bin Saud Islamic University in Riyadh. So, so, so what I mean by um, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia's Islamic educational institution, it could be in Saudi Arabia, it could be in Indonesia, or could be formal or informal. So we talk, the second topic is talk about this, about the, the, the role or contributions of this is, um, is Saudi Arabia Islamic learnings, Islamic learning centers in shaping thoughts and practices of Indonesian students and alumni. So this is the second, second focus. The, and the last focus of this book, I discussed in this book, is about the intellectual trajectory and the shifting nature of Indonesian scholars, scientists, teachers, and students. So let's say educational travelers and migrants of some say transnationals from past to uh, present. So this is this is uh, the, the main focus of this of this book. So look at um, a very quick facts uh, before we just before we discuss more detail about this book. Look at the very quick facts about the bilateral connection between Indonesia and Saudi Arabia. Um, um, to those who might be not familiar with this. So actually bilateral connection or bilateral relation between Saudi Arabia and Indonesia is actually not new. There's been long, long, long history. So Saudi Arabia was among the first countries to recognize Indonesia's independence, for example, in 1945, in addition to Egypt. Yeah. In, if you look at the Middle East, yeah, Egypt and um, Saudi Arabia was among the first countries that recognized uh, Indonesian independence. Indonesia-Saudi ties, were initiated formally in 1948 yeah, with the founding of the Indonesian embassy in Jeddah, and Jeddah is close to uh, uh, Mecca. And then two years later, the Saudi representative office was set up in Jakarta, which was upgraded in 1955 to a formal embassy during the uh, King Saud. In 1935, the, the king Ibn uh, Saud already dead and replaced by his son, which is King Saud. So <clears throat> this is the formal connection between Saudi Arabia and Indonesia. But we have to remember this. However, although the formal connection between Saudi Arabia and Indonesia became only with post-independent Indonesia, for example, but the informal context, informal connections started centuries ago, long before Indonesia gained independence in 1945, yeah, and long before the Saudi Arabia established modern kingdom in 1932. So this, if we look at the formal connection, it's just long, long before Indonesia independence and before Saudi Arabia uh, founded uh, modern uh, kingdom. And then, <clears throat> and then we have also from historical record, we also, we also uh, noticed that in, 19, in late 1920s, for example, the delegation of Nahdlatul Ulama, which is Indonesia's largest Muslim organization, 
at the time, um, Mad King Ibn Saud, which is the founding fathers of modern um, Saudi kingdom to discuss any religious issues. What kind of issues at the time they discussed, which is actually related to, related to um, several um, um, Islamic madhab, which is, which is um, uh, at the time when um, King Ibn Saud uh, would like to um, include Makkah to be part of the modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So uh, some Islamic scholars of Madal Ulama, they worried about the, the new policy that might be replaced the, the uh, Islamic practices in, in Makkah, which is, which is uh, they were afraid, afraid that uh, the new king will replace uh, um, all madhab um, has been practiced there by the Hanbali madhab, which is uh, the madhab has embraced by the, by, 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 by the kingdom. So they negotiate about this. So to, to make sure that all madhab within the Sunni traditions is, um, is to make sure that the king allow uh, teaching practices or learning practices all madhab, Hanafi, Shafi'i, um, <clears throat> um, um, and Maliki, and others is not only um, Hanbali madhab. So this is the key point for the discussion between delegation of Nadatul Ulama, scholars from Nadatul Ulama, and the late uh, King Ibn Saud at the time. So it's already in, in late 20s, um, 1920s. So uh, look at more detail about the informal connection between Mecca and, and South and between Mecca and Indonesia, for example. Since centuries ago, many centuries, there is no exact time when exactly the Indonesian first traveled to the to Hijaz or Mecca. There is no exact uh, exact um, times, but we can recognize from historical record that many since many centuries ago, actually, Indonesian Muslim visited Mecca visited Mecca for two main purposes. Mecca at the time was not, was not belong to Saudi kingdom yet. At the time Mecca was, was under Ottoman also, Turkish man is not, is, is not part of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia yet at the time. So Indonesian visit, uh, Muslim visited Mecca for two main reasons. First for Hajj pilgrimage, this is a obvious reason. The second phase for, uh, was for Islamic learning. Performing Hajj, as one of Islam five, five pillars here, has been one of central religious ritual for Muslims. Of course, there's no question about this, but for Indonesian Muslim has been very special performing Hajj is not only to fulfill the ones of Islam's five pillars, but also this to escalate, yeah, to elevate their social status, their prestige, their pride in the society. Because if they have Hajj, in front of their name, it, it can it can move up their social status, prestige, and pride in the society, and and can be used for for uh, political reason, for economic things, and so on and so forth. So some some Indonesian Muslims also uh, perform Hajj, also for gaining or enforcing what they call kesaktian. Kesaktian might be for Malay, you're familiar with the word kesaktian, or maybe those who have Sanskrit origin, Sakti, Sakti is, is kind of a supernatural divine power. So for, uh, uh, for some Indonesian Muslims, this is according to some studies by anthropologists. So there are some Indonesians perform hajj also to, to, to reinforce or to gain the Saktian, to gain Saktian because they, they visited the most sacred places in Islam like Hajar Aswad, Kaaba, it's considered to be the most sacred places. 
um, uh, for them. So this is why uh, performing hatch is also important for them. So this is this is the fact. So interestingly, so even though they're facing many difficulties, you know, um, uh, might be if, 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 if you read um, the history of Hajj um, um, Indonesia to, 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 to Makkah at the time, they need um, um, six months, one way. One way they need six months, and on the way back, they, of course, they need more uh, six months. So that's mean one hour, one hour journey, voyage in the sea, one hour. So it's become very, very um, a dangerous journey, actually. Treacherous seas, disease, so many diseases at the time, like um, cholera, for example, and also theft, robbery, it happened, it happened at the time. Limited food resources, of course, and so on and so on. This is very, very difficult time. However, um, even though the, the, the journey is very difficult, the number of Indonesian huts pilgrim in the past centuries was extensive. It was interesting, Snog was a Dutch um, um, advisor yeah, for Islamic issues during the, the Dutch colonial period at the time. Snog was, was was living in Hijaz in 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 in, in the uh, the 19th century. Snook Hurgrony uh, lived in Hijaz, and he estimated and he estimated between um, 18 and 50 and 1860 um, um, there were about 106 1600 1, 1, Indonesian Hajj pilgrim in this year. six Indonesian pilgrim and and about um, 2,600 um, um, until 4,600 pilgrims in the uh, 1870s and 1880s. And about 50% at the time, all pilgrims to Makkah in the 19th century were from the Indonesian archipelago. So very enormous, it's very interesting thing to, uh, to, to discuss. So the, the increase, the, the, the hatch become an increase at the time that because steamship technology also, the opening of Swiss Canal, in 1869, um, um, so this made Mecca more accessible, and this resulted in in the increase of Indonesians and pilgrim. And in the end of the 19th century, this according according to Snoch, Snoch according to according to him, is about 8,000 until 10,000 Indonesian ventured for Hajj. It's very very interesting, and many of them, many of them settled in Mecca. And they created what they what we call Kampung Jawa, or the Japanese village. But the word Jawa, the word Jawa, the Kampung Jawa, the word Jawa at the time was not only referred to Javanese island, which is now we understand what Javanese is, what Java island is. The, the word Jawa, the word Jawa at the time referred to to Malay, close to Malay, Malay Indonesian archipelago. Actually, those or people, those who live in this area or Southeast Asia, now we understand it. We call it Kampung Jawa, which is very interesting and still exists until now, this um, Kampung Jawa. So after performing Hajj in past centuries, so some return to Indonesia, some return to, um, again, I use uh, quote by quote here, return to Indonesia, but some, some others, they chose to stay in Makkah for two main reasons, for two main reasons. The first reason why they chose Makkah, they needed money. They needed money either to purchase provisions to return to Indonesia or to pay their debt. Yeah, because, 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 because long journey, so they need more money. And sometimes they run out of uh, provisions or money and then they, um, they borrow or loan money from others. So they need to stay to pay their debts. 
So um, there will be some, some of them, some of them, because 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 of this reason, some of them they, they the jobs might be in the plantation. Some of them work in in small shops. Some of them work as an assistant, what by quotes as assisted pilgrim to get uh, money. But some because of they cannot pay their debt, so they become a slave. Yeah, they become slave. So please remember, in Mecca at the time. Um, there is no, in, in many, many people live in Mecca. It's not necessarily Arab. It could be from Africa. It could be from South Asian. It could be from, um, it could be Turkish. It could be any, any ethnic groups there because, 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 because Mecca is an open place, meeting a melting pot for, melting pot for many, uh, many ethnic groups. It's not necessarily Arab. It could be ethnic groups from other um, tribes, uh, tribal society. This could be Berbers and others and so on and so forth. Whoever lived in, in, in Hejaz at the time was a very enormous um, group of people. And then the second reason is the second reason why they chose to stay in Mecca, the second reason they wanted to study, to learn the Islamic science while simultaneously they performing ritual at the Haramos or Masjid, Masjid um, Haram. Haram. And then a Nabawi mosque or Masjid Nabawi in Medina. So it's, it's very obvious reason. For Muslims, journey for seeking knowledge, which is called Rihla, journey for seeking knowledge, is part of ibadah, or worship, religious ritual, to get what? To get Barokah. This is, this is actually true for Indonesians, Muslims. They study uh, from place to place because it's not only to get knowledge not only to get skills, not only to want to get knowledge or skill, but also they want to get God's blessings, Allah blessing, for example. And it become very special if they could pursue such Islamic knowledge and science in the birthplace of Islam and Prophet Muhammad. It is Makkah, it's become very important place of course for them. So if they, if they could study in Makkah, learn, learn in Makkah, so they not only to get knowledge, Get knowledge, knowledge of Islam, Islamic knowledge of science, but also they will uh, get uh, uh, God's blessings. And, and, they, and Mecca has been very uh, special places for them. So they believe if they died in Mecca, they will get um, guaranteed to get entrance to, uh, to heaven, for example, and so forth. So this until now, many Indonesians um, 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 living in Mecca is a uh, um, because they consider Mecca as a second home, according to the message, which is, which is which is um, important until now. Many people still live there and would like to die there. And many Islamic scholars actually died in, in Makkah because they consider they died in Makkah. So they will enter to Jannah, enter to um, heaven according to their belief. So resulting from this learning process, okay, there were great number of Islamic Indonesian scholars and teachers in the Haramayn. Haramay. What I mean by Haramayn here is Makkah and Medina, yeah, is the word. The, the, the word used Haruman mean Makkah and Medina. Many of them, enormous um, an, um, number of Indonesian Islamic scholars and teachers. And some of them, they established Islamic schools in Makkah, for example, like Madrasa Darul Ulum in 1934. This is uh, some group of, of, of Indonesian scholars, they established Madrasa Darul Ulum there. And some of them established Madrasa Indonesia Al in 1947, for example. Or Madrasa Kutab Al Banat. This is specific for women. This is also established in 1942. Actually, they established a Madrasa for women in 1932 in, in Makkah. Those established this was the was, um, um, Siti Khoria. Name is Siti Khoria. He was she was um, 
the daughter of Jahashim um, uh, Ashari, which is the founder of now the Dr. Ulama I mentioned earlier. So the first, the first is, uh, Islamic schools, madrasa for women, and Makkah at that time was established by Siti Khairiya, the, the daughters of, uh, um, and others, uh, it's not only, only her or him, uh, but also others also, uh, you can read it from, uh, from the books. So since 19, since 17th, 18th century, a number of Indonesian Islamic scholars, teachers, and Sufi masters yeah, who resided in Makkah and Madinah, they called the Mukimin, they had been teaching there, either in mosque, in Haram, Mosque, Masjid Haram, or Masjid Nabawi. They teach, they were teaching there in, in Zawiya, for example, or Sophilogis, in Rubat, for example, or Mahad, for example, is referred to in, in formal religious or Islamic schools, or in Madrasa, formal Islamic school. They were there not only teaching Malay Indonesian pilgrim at the time, but also foreign students from South Asia, from the Middle East, from Africa, and so on and so forth. This has been very, very enormous. So this is an example, an example of, of, of scholar, the name of scholar, Indonesian scholars live in, in Mecca at the time and was teaching there um, at the time. So the, um, this is just example, uh, the complete list name you can find in the book. So the, the first stage of Indonesian Islamic scholars in Arabia, and this is in 17th century until 18th century, you can name it this. Um, very great, great scholars, Rudin Aramiri, Abdurrahim Singkili, Yusuf Makassari, Shamsuddin Sumatran, Yamjafang Sudan, many others. So this is a product of a of a um, 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 Indonesia of, of of Islamic learning institutions in Makkah, and this is and this this scholars was the subject of the study of Professor Azumardi Azra, which is Fauzan uh, mentions earlier. So Professor Azra focus on the study of social biography of these um, um, Islamic scholars, uh, which, which has, been, um, um, has been learning, but also some of them teaching also in, in, in Makkah at the time, in between 17 and 18. And in, in 19th century and 20th century, also there's a great number of Islamic scholars live in Makkah also. And learning, not only learning, but also teachings. So some of them are very prolific Islamic scholar, for example, like Muhammad Nawawi, like Imam Nawawi, for example, is a very prolific scholar, writing many books, many risalah, many treatises, Islamic treatises. Ahmad Khotib Minangkabau is just very excellent and written many books. Mahwutum Termas, for example, and Anders and John Sofa, you can name it. This is, has been the subjects of a study of a uh, Professor Abdurrahman, for example, and, 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 and Basri, for example, also uh, used this uh, um, Islamic network of Islamic scholars as a major study of their dissertation. Professor Azur Mazdi Arzira wrote this dissertation at Columbia University, which is focused on 17th and 18th century, but Professor Abdurrahman Masud and Basri, Basri was, was also um, in, in, in 1997, he wrote dissertations also on, on these Islamic scholars. He wrote dissertation for, I think, in University of Arkansas in the US. And Professor Abdurrahman Masoud, he wrote dissertation on these scholars also in um, University of, of, of UCLA, California in, uh, in Los Angeles. This is, um, has been the, uh, it's just, just, uh, just most, a small example. I also mentioned name and some bio, social biography of them in in my books. Okay, so um, this is um, 
I mean, uh, this is uh, just a small picture. This is what I mentioned before, Azumar Di Azra, his dissertation in 1992. This is talk about, about, about his, um, Indonesian Islamic scholars has been published by, um, I think it's published by um, Hawaii, um, University of Hawaii Press, I think. And, and this is, they were an example of, a, of a, um, Islamic scholars in Makkah, in Makkah, was the founder, this um, Sahyasin in the middle, Sahyasin was the one of the founders of a Madrasah Darul Ulum in 1934 in Makkah, which is I mentioned earlier. This is, this is an example of some group of, of, of Indonesian Islamic scholars or ulama live in Makkah at the time. This is, is just a um, small, small example. And then the nature of an of a, um, Indonesian migrant or transnational was quite changed after post-war um, World War II. Yeah. After World War II, in addition to Hajj and Umrah pilgrims, uh, Umrah and Hajj still continue until World War II. But Indonesian migration was marked by the presence of, of at least three groups, which is different from the previous uh, transnational uh, group. Okay, the first group, uh, uh, gr uh, those who are seeking unskilled manual labor, is it like housemates, drivers, for example, um, um, and, and skilled professional employment. For example, this is those who work in oil industries, in hotels, construction companies, for example. And in 1987-83, this is the first time at the request of the Saudi government, the Indonesian sent um, about 47,000 documented manual, uh, manual laborers. See, the, this is the first time. The first time, um, the many laborers came to, to, to Saudi under the sponsorship of Indonesian government and at the request of the Saudi government. Okay, and since that year, the number and diversity of the labor grew rapidly. It's a group every year, the numbers grew. And, and the data until 2010, in my record, is about close to 1 million. The, the many laborers close to 1 million, um, but because, because the numbers always increase every year. This is for the manual, manual laborers, but for the skilled professional employees, for example, like researchers, scientists, teachers, are not use um, Indonesian government sponsor. They, they usually they apply themselves as, um, to um, those who work in, in companies or, or in universities, just like me, do not, do not, not under Indonesian government and not at the request of the Saudi government. We applied. Um, we apply it to directly to the to the institutions. Okay, this is the difference between manual laborers and the skilled professionals um, employees. And the second groups was Indonesian those who studying Islamic science from undergraduate um, to graduate in Rubat or in in Mahat or in universities, which is which is different from the previous one. The previous before before uh, World War Two, uh, most Indonesian they study in informal. In Masjid Haram or Haram Mosque or Nabawi Mosque or in other, in, in other informal Islamic learning centers, but in post World War II, there's a, a difference, difference, um, difference, uh, different um, Islamic learning centers. In addition to the formal ones, they also study in universities. And the third group is uh, the, the third group um, after post World War II is, is uh, the group Indonesian students graduate. Um, especially graduate do study uh, secular science. Secular science, I mean by secular science, was um, um, non-Islamic studies. So they study engineering, they study computer science, they study business, they study uh, 
um, uh, math, for example, or, and so on and so forth. They study this. This is the new, the new generation of Indonesian student, yeah, Indonesian student, which is which is obviously missing from the previous one, which is mostly just focused on Islamic studies. But now there's a graduate student they focus on on non-Islamic um, studies. So since um, 1970s, with the support of Saudi scholarship, so Indonesian Muslim, they began to study Islam in higher educational institution in Saudi Arabia. This is beginning in 1970s, which is uh, three main, three main um, universities that focus on Islamic studies that mostly many Indonesians um, study there, Islamic University in Madinah, this is the first, the oldest Islamic university, which is Islamic University in Medina, which established in 1960s. And then after 1980s, Indonesians also, some of them, they studied at Umur Qura University and, and Imam Muhammad in South Islamic University in Riyadh. So this is also um, under the sponsorship of the Saudi um, government at the time. But in recent years, the scholarship scheme has changed, have, have shifted, have shifted since in recent years uh, because of uh, several issues that we can we can discuss now so this is the new the new wave yeah the new wave of indonesian of indonesian um, educational um, um, travelers in saudi arabia began to change in 1970s um, actually and see 1990s especially thousands the number of indonesian students also they pursued school of science i mentioned before uh, for master doctorate level and, and various universities, mostly in King Fahad University of Trudem and Mineral. This is my university now. I'm teaching now in this university in King Fahad University of Trudem Mineral in Dahran. The second, the second um, is King Saud University in Riyadh and King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Kuala. This is mostly graduate level for master and PhD, which is based on my, my study from this book. I found um, these three institutions become the most, um, the most place. Yeah where Indonesian study in graduate level master or PhD. So this is the, the example of picture of, of Indonesian, um, current Indonesian students. The, on the left is um, um, students of Islamic studies. This is from uh, Islamic universities in Medina. This is the left, you know, studying Islamic studies. And, and the right was uh, a graduate master PhD who studied uh, school of science. This is in my university in King Fahad, King Fahad University. This is just current, just example of current Indonesian students. And then, okay, that's it. Uh, my talks. I'm going. To, this is a quick summary of of, of the books. Uh, very brief. If I give to Pandor uh, Sahril. So the first is about role and contribution of uh, Indonesian Islamic scholars and teachers to Islamic education and Muslim thought and cultural practices in Arabia, which is especially our mind in past century as well as Indonesia from past to, to now. So um, my, my, my notice was uh, since the death of Sheikh Yassin uh, Padang in 1990, almost no more noted Indonesian scholars in Arabia nowadays. There's no more Indonesian scholars now. I found uh, a few like um, Dr. Fahmi, for example, now uh, he's, he, he teach uh, at Madrasa, um, Madrasa, uh, Madrasa Salatia, if I'm not mistaken, in, in Makkah, but it's very, very rare now since the death of Shah Yassin in Antin. So he was, he was, he is, I think he is the last, the last noted influential, famous Islamic scholars living in Mecca is Shah Yassin. 
he wrote many, many books, many, many books, and very, very prolific writers. He was also the main, um, he is also one of the founders of a female education in Mecca, which is Sahih and his wife, and his wife also uh, the sponsors, uh, one of the sponsors for Islamic education in, in Mecca. Yeah. So since, since the death of Sahih Yassin, there's almost uh, no, no more Indonesian Islamic scholars in, in the Holomain. And then the second quick summary was about the changing nature of education for Indonesia and Saudi Arabia before and after the founding of the modern uh, kingdom of, of, of Saudi Arabia. The changing nature of education means um, in the past some, um, some um, studying mostly on Islamic um, studies, but now um, Indonesians not only studying Islamic studies, but also many of them studying um, 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 secular science or non-Islamic um, 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 studies. And then <clears throat> another thing that the, the book says, um, the quick, um, quick summary here, the plurality of alumni of Saudi educational institution, which is Islamic and non-Islamic studies, conservative and moderate and so forth. This plurality of it is a very enormous, um, enormous, uh, enormous groups of people. Um, and then the variety of Indonesian migrants are transnational in Saudi Arabia. The variety means here in terms of backgrounds, in terms of professions, in terms of religions, for example, it's not only Muslims now, it's not the migrant, it's not you know, many people maybe think that Indonesians uh, migrants in Saudi is, uh, is Muslims. Uh, well, in fact, not. It's not all of the Muslims, many of them non-Muslims. Um, that's a good, my colleague here, there, there was um, uh, non-Muslims also, Indonesian non-Muslims who teach here in, in, the, in the kingdom. So this is the quick summary. So the last point is the key theoretical findings. So what exactly the key theoretical finding, findings here? So although the book underlines the social and religious dimension is important factor shaping the dynamic of Saudi Indonesian relations, so the book suggests the two countries ties as fundamentally consistent with the realist emphasis on state calculation with each country's aiming at maximizing its own national interest. The second point is religion and people-to-people -people connection or ties nonetheless play a key role in the connections establishing historical patterns, influencing um, how the two countries assess each other impact on their national interests and shaping how the two countries see each other government and societies today. And then the last one, while religion is not the primary driving force behind Saudi-Indonesian foreign relations, because there are many reasons of, of factors that contribute to, the, to this foreign relation, but Islam, is, is of course a very important factor. And this religion shaped many aspects of the bilateral, bilateral connections, including education, trade, uh, employment, business, pilgrimage, and so on. No question about this. Last but not least, this is the book's weaknesses. Before Pak Nur Sahril um, uh, criticized my book, I'm going to criticize myself. <laughs> so uh, several weaknesses of this book is the first is, a lack of explanation on the role and contribution of graduates or alumni of non-Islamic studies, as well as their opinion about Islam and Saudi society that might differ from those of Islamic studies alumni. It could be, but I have I do not have chance to explore this more detail in the book. It could be very, a very useful and enormous contribution if we could 
if we could highlight or underline their contributions, explain their rules um, after finishing their studies in, in the kingdom. And that the book also lack of description on the root causes and contemporary intellectual contest and debate between conservative and moderate factions of alumni of Saudi Arabia's educational institutions. Well, I, I mentioned I mentioned several groups of moderate, moderate alumni and several group conservative alumni, but I do not discuss deeply about this contest, the intellectual contest, what what the what the root causes of this contest and so on. And that's it, gentlemen. So um, 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 if you if you like this book, you can you can see on Google and you can see on Amazon. You can directly contact the publisher. It it, it, it don't mind for me. You can you can you would like to read or not. As long as you buy, it's okay for me. <laughs> it doesn't matter you would like to read or not of the book. And here um, that's it. So this is a quote from um, quote from um, Ibn Batuta, yes, which is very. Um, which is also very important for us because the patuta is a well, so yeah. So that is that's it, uh, Fauzan, from uh, from my side, and I give um, uh, Doctor Sahril to criticize, uh, give some opinions on it. Thank you so much again. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Doctor Sumanto, for providing the outline of your book as well as a, a specific or main arguments rather, that you made in the book. I think uh, it has given us some uh, food for thought before we uh, go into a question and answer session later on. But uh, for, for now, I would like to invite Dr. Nusharil Saad to uh, uh, provide his insights on the book. Dr. Nusharil, please. Thank you, Fauzan. Uh, Thank you uh, for inviting me. Uh, and thanks also to MEI for uh, inviting me and giving me this opportunity to be a discussant of this book. Um, first and foremost, congratulations to um, Dr. Sumanto Al-Krutubi uh, for this very insightful publication. Um, on the contrary, I will not be uh, criticizing you. I personally uh, like the book, uh, though I, I must admit that I read the book quickly. Uh, it's fast reading, but I really benefited a lot and learned a lot uh, based on what I've read so far. Uh, why the interest in this topic when Fauzan first asked me to, to do this? I'm not sure whether I'm the right person to be the discussant, uh, but certainly I have a strong interest in looking at Middle East impact in Southeast Asia. Uh, previously, I've looked at um, uh, Singapore students traveling to the Middle East, um, one of the books that I have published, a short monograph, in fact, was looking at Singapore students in Al-Azhar University. Um, and uh, very, very recently, I also embarked on a separate study, uh, and Fauzan is part of this study as well, looking at um, the Islamic studies graduates uh, from Singapore. And bulk of them from the madrasas actually go to the Middle East. Um, of course, the more popular destination would be Egypt, uh, followed by uh, Jordan, uh, increasingly, in fact. Uh, but a sizable number of our uh, students in Singapore actually go to uh, Saudi Arabia, particularly uh, Islamic University of, of Medina. And hence, um, I think this is how I'm going to shape my discussion today. Uh, rather than um, focusing so much on the book, uh, I would like to share with you some of my work uh, 
some data that I've gathered from my work. So as I was reading uh, uh, Dr. Sumanto's book uh, on um, Indonesia-Saudi Arabia relations, particularly dealing with students, um, I was also reflecting on the content of my own project, the data that I've gathered, particularly how it deals with Singapore students. And I, I think this is a basis for me to compare and contrast the situation. And perhaps uh, we can have a better discussion later uh, when we, we compare the situation uh, amongst Indonesian students as well as Singapore students. So I will focus less on the theoretical framework, which uh, Dr. Sumanto have discussed extensively uh, in his book, The Rihla. Uh, I will not go into that, but more, my discussion will be more uh, centered along what concerns Islam and Muslims in Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, Indonesia is one largest country uh, in, 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 in uh, the largest Muslim country in the world. Uh, but I also want to look at compare and contrast the situation in uh, Singapore and also in Malaysia. And more importantly, the significance of Saudi Arabian Islam for Singapore, uh, particularly addressing some of the concerns uh, of not only academics, but also policymakers here in Singapore. Uh, when we talk about Saudi Arabia, when we talk about uh, Middle East, often we think about security issues, uh, particularly uh, the talk of the town now is Arabization. Uh, how the Malays here in Singapore and also in Southeast Asia have, are beginning to lose their own cultural roots and identity. This includes their language, uh, their fashion, uh, their habits, uh, and uh, giving more privilege to a Middle East culture. Uh, for instance, uh, we don't use Malay words to describe our culture uh, anymore. We, we tend to replace them with Arabic words. So that's one of the concerns of uh, policymakers as well as academics. Uh, the second one has been a long-standing issue when we discuss uh, Singapore-Saudi Arabia uh, form of relations, the importation of Salafi Wahhabism, which is uh, associated with uh, Puritan ideas. Uh, this is not a new issue. Uh, if you study Indonesian Islam, of course, we have the Kaumuda Kaumtua debate, the, 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 the the Sumatra uh, situation that leads to the modernist movement. So this is not a new issue, but lately there's been a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia um, uh, exporting uh, the Salafi Wahhabi idea. And I think we can gather a lot from uh, Dr. Sumanto's publication, uh, particularly pertaining to um, the, uh, the, uh, the discovery of oil and the, the, the petrodollars that was being exported. Uh, and also the geopolitical situation, the rivalry between uh, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, uh, which exports yeah, uh, the Salafi Wahhabi ideology. And the third concern would be the graduates of IUM. Uh, this one, I think Singaporeans, uh, policymakers are quite interested because we have quite a number of students in Medina. Uh, and I, based on my study, uh, I think this is a very interesting category altogether compared to the other students who actually studied in Singapore Madrasa. So there are certain traits and certain features which I will discuss later in my presentation. Um, yeah, so my, my talk will not be so directly be responding to uh, Dr. Sumanto's book. If you ask me to grade his book, I would say read it. It's a very good book. Yeah. Uh, right, some, some key discussions that I wish to raised in my talk today 
Um, and this, of course, uh, is very much inspired by what Dr. Sumantu has done in his book, as I was reflecting. Uh, and again, it came from it comes from my personal experience. Uh, first time I actually traveled to Saudi Arabia was to perform the Umrah, and this was in 2003. Um, almost uh, uh, 15 years ago, yeah, more than that. Um, and uh, no, I, I came with a Singapore group. Uh, and when I was in Mecca, I was greeted by a, um, an Indonesian who has stayed in, in Mecca. Uh, apparently, this person is called the Mutawif, the person who actually brings pilgrims around and circling the Kaaba. And this person is Indonesian. So he has worked with this Singapore company for decades, actually. So it gave me the opportunity to actually speak to this Ustaz, uh, who has been guiding Singapore pilgrims. Uh, apparently, he was from uh, Banjarmasin uh, in South Kalimantan. And uh, the reason why is, he's interesting is because I was observing the rituals which he conducted and why the Singapore agency was very comfortable with uh, this uh, Ustaz. The rituals that he conducted was very much Shafi'i school of thought, very close to Singapore Muslims' uh, orientation. Uh, he performed rituals which are very close to uh, traditionalists, very Nahdlatul Ulama type, which makes it uh, makes the reason why he's, 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 he's selected. So when we ask him why he decided to stay in Saudi Arabia, uh, he, he shared that actually the main reason why he came to Saudi Arabia was to find work first and then to also study religion. But then he... he uh, he continued studying uh, informally, not in any university, but um, he found work with the Singapore agency and it's a very lucrative thing and he, he survived based on that. So that actually developed an interest for me to find out more about this community. And he shared that there is a very huge uh, uh, Banjar community in Saudi Arabia. And if you, if you visit Mecca, for instance, they are the ones who have been running this Mutawif business. Uh, uh, and provided the services to Southeast Asian uh, pilgrims. Yeah, so I think uh, this is why I get it from um, on Dr. Sumanto's work as well. Some people travel to Saudi Arabia uh, mainly for work, this is temporary, uh, for pilgrimage, and some of them are, are maybe uh, students, right? That's why they, they actually studied, they went to, to, to Saudi Arabia. But some actually stayed on a bit longer. This, are, this is a more permanent form of traveling for work. And they actually form communities and they also, uh, also build families uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So there are multiple reasons. Uh. So uh, just to share, before I met this Ustaz in, 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 the, in, in Saudi, the perception that I gather about Saudi Arabia is that it's Wahhabi Salafi, it's very Puritan, it's very backward. But, but as you go there, you step your foot in, in Mecca, you step your foot in Saudi Arabia, uh, and uh, things are different from what we actually read. And I think Dr. Sumanto's work also tried to deconstruct uh, this whole perception that uh, Saudi Arabia is backward, is homogeneous, and all that. I think that's that's very in, a useful uh, uh, perspective. The second dimension that I wish to discuss is the Indonesia-Saudi relations, particularly the impact on Southeast Asian Islam. As I mentioned earlier, I think the image that we gather is that it's very much Salafi, Wahhabi, which is true, is a dominant ideology in Saudi Arabia. But if you go deeper down, uh, as you read uh, Dr. Somanto's work, there are uh, schools uh, mainly catered for Southeast Asian. 
there are schools and ulama who mainly teaches other schools of thought, though they are mainly uh, lying low because of the, the certain political situation in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, 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 and certainly we have to look at the, the contributions of Indonesians and Southeast Asia to Saudi Arabian Islam. Rather than always focusing that Middle East is impacting Southeast Asia, we also need to look at this discourse and say that no, actually Southeast Asia too have a significant impact on Saudi Arabian uh, Islam. Though, uh, of course, there are certain periods where they are more dominant. And I think at this point of time, maybe the time is not uh, ideal for them to actually come back to the surface. But, but uh, as I will discuss later, Saudi Arabia today is also undergoing significant changes and we might see a change in the near future. Um, the, third, the third point that I, I gather from Dr. Sumanto's book is that if you want to study Saudi Arabia, you want to study Islam in the Middle East, you don't have to only look at the ideology or the uh, teachings of Islam. You also need to look at geopolitical uh, competition that happened uh, in the Middle East. Uh, the context of the fall of Ottoman Empire was, was really uh, spot on by Dr. Sumanto. I think he was looking at the, that ideological competition, that history that Naruto Ulama and Muhammadiyah were, were actually competing in Indonesia and they were also trying to get patrons in the Middle East and one went to Saudi, the other went to Egypt. This shows that there were tensions in the Middle East that actually shaped uh, Southeast Asian Islam. Uh, and of course, it, this, this, this competition will, will constantly shape Southeast Asian Islam as well. If you look at the contemporary context, the competition with Egypt is one. Uh, the other is, of course, currently uh, is, is the competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And this will definitely play out and shape uh, not only Southeast Asian Islam, but also uh, global uh, Islam. All right. So, um, this is a bit promotion that uh, this is a book that is, is, is going to come up this month. Uh, it's based on uh, my study with uh, my colleagues, Azhar Ibrahim and Noor Aisha. Uh, maybe later I can invite Dr. Sumanto to review my book uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and share some of his insights. Uh, but uh, we were interested to look at Singapore Islamic Studies students in general, and one country is, is Saudi Arabia. Uh, why Saudi Arabia? Um, so if you ask the students uh, from Singapore, why Saudi Arabia? Uh, of course, the more popular destinations would be Egypt, Malaysia, and Jordan, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, surprisingly, not Indonesia. Um, but why Indonesia? That's why I began to compare what Dr. Sumanto shared earlier. Uh, some of the things uh, actually resonate with my findings. Uh, Holy Land, uh, the fact that it's close to Mecca. We have ulamas who are based in Mecca. They can perform their Umrah and Hajj uh, easily. Uh, the other reason is that there are opportunities for informal learning. So if you go to the mosque in uh, Masjid Nabawi in Medina, you can actually sit and listen to lectures uh, in the form of closed circles, and then you can gain insights and knowledge. The more, most common uh, argument for Singapore students is that the scholarship is very lucrative. Uh, everything is paid for. Uh, you, can, you cannot work in, in Saudi Arabia because uh, you... you the government doesn't allow you to do that, but it's enough for you to survive, and you don't have to worry so much about, about taking care of yourself, right? Some of them say that housing is also provided. Uh, but the most important reason why Singapore students uh, go to Saudi Arabia is that they don't really need a madrasa background. You know, Singapore, we have um, madrasas, or, or Islamic uh, primary school and secondary schools. So most of the students who actually enroll into these schools were 
will actually eventually go to an Islamic university in Al-Azhar University or in Malaysia, uh, Malaysian universities and all sorts. But you don't need that madrasa background to be enrolled in Saudi Arabian universities. All you need to, sh to show is that you can speak a bit of Arabic, you show interest, and your scholarship is being funded by the Saudi Arabian uh, government. So that's another pull factor. Yeah. Uh, why why Singapore go Singaporeans go to Saudi Arabia? So we, I encountered cases of uh, uh, students or undergraduates who are studying in Singapore universities quit the university, decided to go to Saudi Arabia to study, and the government uh, funds uh, such cases, which makes it more uh, interesting uh, for them. So there's been a lot of interest on Saudi Arabian uh, influence in in Singapore. Uh, the key concerns amongst policymakers is that is association with Salafi Wahhabism or Puritanism, uh, the security situation in the Middle East, uh, and uh, as Dr. Sumanto pointed out in his book, of course, the dominant uh, uh, ideology in, in, in Saudi Arabia is the Hambali Mazhab, whereas uh, in, in Southeast Asia is mainly Shafi. How are they able to integrate uh, when they come back upon their return? So this is another concern. Uh, the last concern is about jobs uh, of these graduates when they come back, especially in Singapore mosques. You know, Singapore mosques are mainly Sufi-oriented. They do the zikir, they do the maulud. Where, where, where can we place uh, you know, uh, Salafi, Wahhabi, trained uh, uh, ulama? This is a perception. Now, of course, this is, this is something that we can, we, can, we can argue. So jobs for them. But there are also positive aspects uh, of uh, studying in Saudi Arabia. Firstly, uh, those who came back actually make connections uh, in Saudi Arabia. So they become very successful businessmen, um, especially in handling Hajj and Umrah pilgrims. So the connection matters and they know the place. So they, they, always, um, they always make these connections and later they, they pursue this business. Um, some actually go to Saudi Arabia not to study religion, as Dr. Sumanto pointed out. Um, they study the sciences. But I, I noticed that some of them actually uh, went to Saudi Arabia to establish business connections and to study Islamic banking. I hear of such uh, cases. Uh, so, so they make these connections. It's mainly not so much religious reasons, but also for you know, business and also for, for other reasons. Uh, and the other positive aspect about students from Medina uh, compared to the other universities that I've studied is that they are very passionate to become religious teachers. I think they're very, their minds are very set. Because I think the reason is that they, they made the decision to become a religious teacher at the later part of their lives. Uh, some of them were in the late secondary schools, some of them were in the JCs, the colleges, and also in, in, uh, in some university. So they decided to become a religious teacher. They cannot enroll to Al-Azhar. Uh, they cannot enroll to Jordan. So what they do, Saudi Arabia is the best destination because they actually allow and take us with full scholarship. So they become passionate. Uh, religious teachers when they come back because their minds were set uh, later part in their lives. Yeah? So these are some of the positives and some of the concerns. All right, I will just uh, wrap up this section. I, I hope there's enough uh, for discussion later. Um, some concluding remarks and observations based on Dr. Sumantu's book. Um, first is factors that shape Islamic orientation. I think Dr. Sumantu's book is very useful in the underlying the complexity of the Saudi Arabia influence. Uh, 
uh, if you look at Indonesian students studying in Saudi Arabia, as correctly pointed out by, uh, by, by Dr. Sumanto, and I, I share this observation myself, those Indonesians who went to uh, Saudi and came back, they are not necessarily Puritans. Uh, in fact, I, I, I read some of their works, I met some of these people. Uh, they are far from being Puritans. They are really, really progressive scholars. Said Agil Siraj from, from uh, if I'm not mistaken, Um Kurok. Uh, I don't know, I, I may be wrong on that. Um, uh, Colin Nafis, Muhammad Imbadur Rahmat, a, a human rights activist and ulama, uh, who I met. <laughs> Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised that, actually I didn't know this, but I'm surprised that uh, Dr. Sumanto said that he, he was a graduate from, from, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, totally a very progressive scholar, right? So what, what explains that? What explains these Indonesians who went there, came back, and they're not conservatives, they're not Puritans, they are very progressive. What, I think it's got to do with the, um, the, the, the system in Indonesia itself. So you can't really blame Saudi Arabia. We have to look, we look at this whole idea of Saudi Arabia as promoting Salafism, Wahhabism. Because if the institutions, the local institutions are strong in, in embedding that progressive thinking from the start before they make their way to Saudi Arabia, then I think um, the Saudi Arabian impact is not there. Um, yeah, so the other, the other part is that um, we also need to look at who the students in Saudi Arabia mingle with. And I think Dr. Sumanto raised this point as well. They, they mix with different groups. They have different social circles of friends. That photo that Dr. Sumanto shared earlier, uh, I haven't seen that previously, but he, when he showed it, the thing that came to my mind was that one picture showed um, students in their, you know, <laughs> in their very Islamic, uh, in their white skull cap, but the other picture is batik, <laughs> you know, which is quite interesting. Uh, that observation, it could be the circle of friends and what is, uh, is, is, is acceptable uh, uh, in, in the particular circle of friends in Saudi Arabia. So which professional groups they mingle with, which state in Saudi Arabia did they go to? You know, people tend to think of Saudi Arabia as one country that is homogeneous. If you go to, you know, I haven't been to Riyadh, but if you step your foot in Jeddah, which borders Mecca, it's a totally different society altogether. Uh, so, so yeah, so we need to really be careful when we, uh, when we discuss Saudi Arabia. I think I mentioned the other point about geopolitical rivalry and how it's impacting uh, our understanding of Saudi Arabia. And my last point here is that uh, Saudi Arabia itself is undergoing change. Um, if you, I mean, I read uh, Saudi newspapers, the English ones, uh, almost every day. If you read the Saudi Arabia papers, the discussions are less about religion. You know? And you'll be surprised, you know, what is allowed to, to feature in those newspapers um, about women, women's rights, you know, technological change. And recently they're talking about heritage uh, and the use of technology to, to, to understand heritage. Uh, in Singapore, we're not talking like that. But Saudi Arabia is already talking like that. I think they are more advanced when it comes to this aspect. So society itself is changing. And just want to share with you, uh, before the borders close, uh, before this COVID-19 hit, I was in Saudi, I performed my Umrah again. Uh, this was in 2020, uh, February. It's a totally different society. When I entered the, uh, when I came to the airport, uh, for the first time, uh, 
I mean, I've been there a few times, but the first time I was greeted by female who are actually manning the uh, immigration. This has never happened before. So that's another change. At the hotels, uh, the counters, the, the receptions, uh, it used to be male, uh, but this is my last visit, uh, they're actually females. So I think the society is beginning to change. Uh, it's slow, it's slow. I mean, it was only 10 years ago that maybe they started to have internet access. I still remember in 2008, 2008 when I was performing my Hajj, I had problems uh, getting internet access, which I cannot even beat for my modules uh, because I was still a student then. But today it's like everybody has access to internet and smartphones in Saudi Arabia. It's slow in terms of change, but it is changing. And I think, uh, so we have to be careful uh, when, when we discuss Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying that uh, there's no problems. I'm not saying that Salafism, Wahhabism is gone. What I'm saying is that there are certain forces at play that we need to rethink about Saudi Arabia. I think I'll stop there. And uh, certainly I would uh, uh, welcome questions. But of course, the limelight should be for the first one to invest in this book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Nusharil, for providing your insights and reflections on, on Dr. Sumantu's book. And situating it in Singapore's context, right? Uh, I think it's uh, very, very timely that we discuss uh, uh, the Southeast Asian context and how Saudi Arabia has actually given uh, a lot of impact on uh, our societies in terms of our religious practices. So um, we have now come to the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question to our speaker and or discussant, you may use the raise hand function on Zoom and we will invite you to speak directly. At the same time, you may also type in your questions into the Zoom chat box and direct them to MEI events, which I will then read up here. Okay. So uh, to start off, I will uh, actually read out a question uh, posed by Ambassador Zainul Abidin. Uh, and this question is directed to Dr. Sumanto. Uh, thank you for, for the enlightening sharing, Dr. Sumanto. Saudi Arabia is currently undergoing lots of modernizing changes, some controversial. How do you see these developments contributing or complicating Indonesia's efforts at Islam, Wasatiyah, or moderate Islam? Okay, um, um, thank you so much. Yes, um, I, think, I think it will affect um, in some part of Indonesian culture or Indonesian Islam, as I mentioned in the book, which is which is um, which is Panur uh, Sahril also uh, pointed out um, in, in his observations uh, that um, <clears throat> there is um, several streams um, um, of Indonesian Islam, which is which is far away from monolithic groups, and I think. I think the uh, the changing the changing the, the cultural change what happening in 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 the kingdom um, in terms of cultures and also perception about um, religions and others I think will will make a good um, impact on Indonesian society. Well, in fact, we have um, we established um, the 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 ambassador Indonesian ambassador in in the kingdom. Which is, which is also, who was also my friend actually, Mas uh, <clears throat> Agus, he established Saunisia. Saunisia is a, is, a, is a concept to bridge between Indonesia and Saudi Arabia to discuss a common platform regarding um, um, Islamic moderation and so forth. And, and what happened in Saudi, which, which is actually the same thing in, in, in Indonesia now. In Saudi, they, um, 
they promote moderation promote moderation which is the the moderation happened in saudi my my observation was actually not not is not on the recent phenomena which actually already took place since the late king abdullah actually in uh, since he was um, um, on the drown in in 2005 he already in even before the late of king abdullah had become became the king he initiated many um, uh, moderation within the kingdom so i would say that the the, the moderation islamic moderations uh, within the saudi arabia started since uh, king abdullah and then of course now it's become more and more um, um, excellent development and this also connect the same thing happened in indonesia they promote wasatiya islam wasatiya islam is actually the same thing like islamic moderation so the both government indonesian government and 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 Saudi government now in the same platform, in the same in the same page, those promote um, uh, promote um, Islamic moderations because they believe that um, it is through moderations that can transform society um, to become um, modern um, um, society. It is through uh, moderation. So this, so this is the belief that has been practiced by Saudi government or or Indonesian governments, but. The society is might be different things. The society, we have to talk about between state and society, between government and non-government um, agencies. For non-government agencies, it could be different. It could be it could be multi-layers. Uh, um, 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 it's, it's not it's not it's not it's not unified. It's not monolithic because if we talk about the society in Indonesia, it could be some of them might be. Uh, welcome the ideas of moderation, but some of them might be not welcome the idea of moderation is because idea of moderation is maybe is, uh, um, was was a stinking moderation is maybe not as part of, of of the true Islamic belief for some people for some people, but but for others people for other people of course not. If we talk about um, society, society Indonesian Muslims especially there's a huge differences. There's huge um, differences among them. Some of them are very welcome, like uh, Nahdlatul Ulama, of course, is very welcome about about the idea of Islamic moderations. But some uh, some um, some uh, Salafi groups might be not. But even within the Salafi group, there are various um, sub uh, faction. Yeah, there's various subgroup within the Salafi group. Salafi groups also not unified. There are many many uh, within the Salafi group. Some of them very conservative. Some of them a little bit moderate. Some of them are very open to, uh, to the new ideas, so it's it's enormously is different from uh, from case to case. But my point is, the idea of moderation was happening in the kingdom was, of course, this will will affect um, Indonesian uh, uh, Indonesian society in general because they look at the, the Saudi Arabia as one of the key key important uh, countries compared to other other countries in the Middle East like. Uh, um, Qatar or Bahrain, Emirates or Egypt and so forth. Saudi Arabia is a special place because it is here, Mecca is located, it is here, Medina is located, it is here, Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Haram is located. It's become very special uh, location. So we call it sacred geography, sacred geography in anthropological studies. So this is why we talk about um, uh, Saudi become, um, become very important places for, for Indonesian uh, society. If, they, if, if, if change, happen here um, of course it will impact 
will impact to the to the changing in Indonesian society. Even though some group of people they do not do not look at what happening in the kingdom. It, I, I know this. I know this because some people there is a contest uh, within Indonesian Muslim. Some of them in the past they consider uh, Saudi Arabia as a truly Islamic uh, country. But now, because Saudi Arabia moved to moderations, moved to moderation, so they begin to some of them begin to change. Uh, Saudi Arabia is no longer Islamic, so they so 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 they they change the discourse. They change the, the discourse uh, regarding Saudi Arabia. But 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 this is just, uh, uh, some factions, not the only factions, uh, not the only Islamic Muslim faction. What happening in in the countries? So let's see in the in, in the future. I don't know. It could be. It depends on how it's, it's, it's not it's not black and white. It depends on the on the uh, political discourse, political practices. Depend on the contest between progressive groups and conservative group, moderate group, and 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 not moderate group, and so on. So yeah, that's my my uh, my answer. I, I hope this answers the question. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Smalto. We have we have we have a question from from the audience here from uh, Philip. Uh, Brock May, uh, could you which uh, ask a question, please? Yes, um, thank you very much uh, for the presentation. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, Good. yes, yes, okay. yes. Um, there uh, is a recent uh, book, a handbook on Hadith uh, studies, uh, and it um, describes uh, Al-Fadani, uh, one of the central characters in your book, um, as the, the most prominent uh, Muslim or, or Hadith scholar or transmitter of Isnat uh, of the 20th century. Uh, so we could say that, that uh, Yasin al-Fadani, he was uh, an important scholar, not just uh, because of his influence in Saudi Arabia, but basically uh, for the whole Muslim world. Uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't read your book yet. Uh, so I would be interested in, in uh, how much do you know about his, his influence beyond uh, Saudi Arabian uh, and Indonesian scholars? Yes, uh, Sahih Yassin was a very important person. I, I agree, so he is a very important person. The influence is, is within, within the, we talk about in, in the kingdom in the past, yeah, in the past, um, because uh, he died in, in, in 1990s. Yeah. The influence um, in the kingdoms is, of course, is, is connected to the, the role he played in establishing several madrasas for Islamic and has been influenced and has been um, and he, he was he was teaching many um, Islamic scholars, Indonesian Islamic scholars here, and then and then when they back uh, home Indonesia, they established um, Sandran and others. I know um, Sahyasin has been very res uh, highly respected um, scholars by. By um, Indonesian Kiais, for example, Kiais was a was the um, Islamic scholars uh, of, of those who like a Muslim cleric who was, was teaching and founding the uh, Islamic boarding school of a Sandran. And if we look at the um, in Indonesia, they, they, many of them um, has been highly um, they, they very much appreciate to the work and to the, not only to the work but also to the the, the persons of of Sahyasin. For example, he made um, um, connection with some Pesantrens in Rembang, in Pati, and, and he visited, uh, before he died, he visited Pesantrens, he visited Indonesian Pesantrens from place to place. 
Indonesia. Yeah? And, and many Greek Pesantrens in, 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 in Indonesia is actually, of course, is um, very much um, respect to the um, um, Sheikh Yassin. Not only Sheikh Yassin, but also um, um, Sayyid Maliki, uh, Sayyid Ahmed Maliki, also this become very important. Sayyid Ahmed Maliki, is, of course, is not, is, not, is, not, is not Indonesians, but he has a huge connection to Indonesians because, because Sayyid Said Maliki, um, Sayyid Ahmed Said Maliki, Said Muhammad has is, 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 um, is, is become um, has close um, connections to um, Indonesian Islamic scholars as well. So this is, um, I, I have no idea, but his connections beyond, beyond Makkah and, 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 and Indonesia. Um, but um, what, I'm, what I understand is um, Sahih Yasin Padang, Sahih Yasin bin Isa Al Fadani Padang is um, an extensive network among Indonesian pesantrens. Um, uh, yeah, but the the, uh, the the problem is, I have no idea either their work, their books has been uh, translated to Indonesians or not. I have no idea about this. Mm -hmm. But uh, some work for Imam Nawawi, absolutely yes. I, I know about um, Imam Nawawi, but it's, of course this is the previous one eh, before the Sahyasid. But I'm not sure if the if, if Sahyasin's work has been translated into um, Indonesian and has been used in Madras or Pesantren. I have no idea. Well, I mm. think we need to further <laughs> yeah. research about this. But he is, he is very prolific scholars. I know he's very yeah. uh, in my book. I I make less his work and, and mostly in Arabic. He he he's, he he's written his 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 writing mostly in Arabic. And most Indonesian scholars in the past is not only Sahyasin but also. Uh, Imam Nawawi, Syekh Nawawi, Syekh Mahfud Termas, um, Syekh Ahmad uh, Minangkabo, they all read, wrote his, they read the writings uh, in Arabic, not, mm -hmm. in, uh, not in Indonesian. Some, mm -hmm. some yes, in Malay, but, it's in Arabic. but the question is, is there any um, scholars who would like to translate this and become into, into Indonesian mm -hmm. and has been used in Pesantren and others? I have no idea. I have to have to discuss more detail because because uh, Yasin mostly they 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 live here and died here and and yeah so th their connection is through the the students the students who studied under his um, um, yeah. yeah yeah so um, so Dr. Smanto sorry uh, I think I have a follow up question to that um, mm -hmm. so looking at Sheikh uh, Yasin and also Sheikh uh, Muhammad bin Alawi Al Maliki although they are great uh, Hadith scholars that are frequented by Indonesian uh, students. And I, I think this also points to two things. Firstly, the diversity of Indonesian students who frequent uh, these two scholars who are by and large, I think, not sanctioned by the Saudi kingdom, right? As opposed to their con contemporaries like uh, al Albani or Ibn Baz who are also mm -hmm. uh, Hadith scholars in their own right. So um, do you have any comment on that in terms of, you know, despite these two figures, uh, Sheikh Yassin and uh, Muhammad bin Alawi, being great Hadith scholars, how are their relationships? Uh, how is their relationship with with the state like, as opposed to uh, the state sanctioned uh, scholars? I mean, the the state sanction is only to those who might be had some had some uh, political oppositions to the government. For example, if those do not have uh, some direct political opposition, so they are okay. So, for example, uh, Sayyid Said Muhammad and Said Allah, Said Muhammad and, and his son Said Ahmad. Now, Said Ahmad is still uh, still run the uh, school, Mahat 
Alawi in in Makkah still still teaching um, Indonesian students. Um, many Indonesian students have been teaching under uh, his mahad. But as long as um, they only teaching for for Islam and others, that's that, that's okay. So it's still still okay. The same thing like um, Sayyasin is record. He doesn't have any political opposition to the government. He just he just teaching as a scholar and that's it. So um, I mean, if if um, if, if it doesn't have any direct or, or, or confrontative uh, um, opposition to the to the religious establishment or political establishment, so that's okay. Uh, I mean, um, uh, it's, it's, it's no problem um, about this. Um, and and also, if we if we discuss previously, there is a, some 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 uh, some historical trajectory in which uh, the governments also sometimes they they embrace uh, Sayyid Muhammad, they embrace Sayyid Muhammad as a as a partner, um, as a partner as, as a partner against uh, the groups. Who against the government? So, for example, um, in the in, in the in, in the 1990s, for example, when uh, many very conservative religious scholars in the kingdom they opposed the government, the government because of the Gulf War, because of the Gulf War, right? The, the Gulf Wars um, 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 between between Iraq and Kuwait and and and, and the Gulf um, and the Saudi at the time um, used the land um, for the American army. Um, this is actually it, it close close to my area. Actually, they they establish a military base here, with, and 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 many Islamic um, some Islamic um, um, scholars and cleric they disagree with the government's uh, with the with the government decision to host um, the American armies and armies in 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 Saudi, and this include the. Um, Osama bin uh, bin Laden network chair, yeah, so all, all those who are very uh, conservative group, and then at the time um, the government they make a new coalition with Said Muhammad as a, as a new as a new partner within the kingdom to oppose this 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 group of Islamic scholars who disagree with the with, with the decisions of the government. So everything is is, is dynamics, folks, and it's not really. Uh, it depends on what kind of a, um, 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 a dynamics happening. It's, it's not always as, as it is. It's, it's changing a lot. It's changing. It's be, uh, uh, based, uh, it depends on what kind of a relationship between, between the um, political establishment and religious establishment. Sometimes they use this because they um, uh, beneficial the government, but if not beneficial the government, they will oppose. They oppose this. So it's, uh, like the, uh, for example, even though Osama bin Laden, for example, is Saudis, basically, but uh, um, um, very uh, militant like um, Osama and others, of course, many Saudis will not welcome them, right? So this is why, um, 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 if, if not welcome, and then they become conflict one another, and and it's happened. It's not only in in the kingdom actually, but in it, it happened in other in other countries also. It depends with whom. You will um, you will follow you, you you will follow my decision. You will follow my policy or not? If you follow policy, uh, you can you can uh, behind me. If if not, and then uh, make confrontation. <laughs> so this is this is what what I'm what, what I understand. As, um, yeah. So for as for Sayyasin, he never. As long as I don't know, no, he, he was he was very have have. 
have, have no political things and that. No, 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 he was just, just. But uh, the case of Sayyid Ahmad, yes, uh, Sayyid Ahmad, yes. It's, it's not, not confrontation with the government, but um, um, the government allow them, allow them uh, to access this because, because do not have, um, confront, do not make confrontation with the, with the government or strong mm -hmm. religious establishment, which is, which is of course different from other yeah. uh, religious scholars. That's it. We have, yeah, we have two more questions from uh, Steve Gaspers. Uh, he says here, uh, thank you Dr. Sumanto and Dr. Shari for the very insightful views on different angles, Indonesia and Singapore. A question for Dr. Sumanto, do you touch an issue on your book about the increasing primordial respect for the so-called Habib groups who are considered as the highest caste in the common Indonesian Muslims? And a question for Dr. Nushari, how can you describe- oh, oh, Hold on, hold on, Fauzan, one by one. The first question is, can you, can you paraphrase? Uh, um, do you touch an issue on your book about the increasing primordial respect for the so-called Habib groups, the Habaib, the Habibs, mm. uh, who are considered as the highest caste in, in the mm. ranks of uh, Indonesian society, Indonesian Muslim society, they are considered to be at the top, right? So uh, do, do you talk about them in your book, uh, how Indonesians revere this Habaib in Indonesian society and what are mm. their relationship with the Indonesian Muslim society? And just mm. to wrap things up, I will also read out the question for Dr. Nosharil here. How can you describe about the Singaporean youth Islamic groups today? Is there any reinforcing movement among the Singaporean youth Muslim groups? So both mm. questions from Steve Gaspers. Maybe Dr. Sumantu, you can go first. Yeah, uh, for, uh, for Habaib, no, no, we do not talk about the Habaib group um, in the book. The book, um, we, we, we mainly discuss about this. is. As, as um, Dr. Sahril, uh, Dr. Nur Sahril mentions, uh, the main point of my book actually to deconstruct the perceptions of, of many people, which is they consider um, 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 Saudi as a, as a monolithic group, um, Saudi alumni as a monolithic group. So, which is which is what happening is no, it is happening is very truly diverse groups truly diverse group so so this is this is the main pur uh, purpose of the book is to deconstruct the perception the perception discourse of belief or maybe com common belief among many people who are not familiar with the with the um, Saudi Arabia and Indonesian network so this is why the um, the book discuss about uh, um, um, alumni of a, of a non-islamic studies we discuss about um, alumni of a Saudi Arabian institution, which is not not all of them become very militant Islamic group. Uh, many of them um, also become um, they, many of them embrace moderation and so forth. So this is among the reasons for the purpose of the books is to deconstruct uh, people's perception. We do not we do not discuss specifically on 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 the Habib Habib network, even though even though uh, Syed Syed Ahmed. Or Said 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 Alawi and his son Said Muhammad and his son Said Ahmad now Said Ahmad is is is, is from the from the Habaib um, um, family. Um, they of course they have enormous enormous network network in Indonesia, but I also do not discuss this issue. Okay, and even within Habaib also the Faris group within Habaib is not all Habaib like. Um, uh, um, um, uh, who is, is this uh, um, Shihab, for example? Is this, uh, there are various um, various group with, within Habaib also, which is I do not do not mention specifically in this uh, specific group. Maybe 
maybe uh, another uh, times maybe if I have time so to talk about the Habaib uh, networks um, or Habaib um, influence and or, or maybe study that connected to Habaib. Um, yeah, that's it, Sajan. Thank you, uh, um, <laughs> um, uh, Steve. Yes, are you here, Steve? Are you still here, Steve? <laughs> Thank you so much for the uh, for the question and for coming for the discussion. Yeah, Pastor. Thank you, bro. Okay, we talk to Yeah, I, I just wanted to share also before I answer that, that question. Uh, also, some some insights that I gather. I think uh, from from this talk, in fact, and it's always a pleasure listening to Dr. Sumanto as, as well as reading the book. Um, firstly, I think it's important to set out before discussing Saudi Arabia, sometimes to set foot in Saudi Arabia is also important to understand the change in society, to understand the deep realities on the ground, to understand the different parts of Saudi Arabia. I think Dr. Sumanto had the privilege because he's there, but based on some of the visits, I, I, short visits I, that I went to Saudi Arabia, I'm able to, to see uh, different kind of society, nuance, and, then, and some of the complexities that's happening on the ground. Uh, there are problems, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, we should not be casting society as one homogeneous entity. Uh, there are also conflicts within them. There are also tensions between them. And regarding the Habaib community, uh, if I may share, I didn't, again, I, I didn't travel much in Saudi Arabia, but I, I do attend some of the events of Habaibs in Singapore. And I noticed uh, um, there are instances, there were instances where actually some of them actually came from Saudi Arabia, which shows one thing that there is a, there is, there is a Habaib community in, in, in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I was quite surprised. They actually does this kind of rituals in private because of the current situation and current political climate. But they do, they do have their, their family ties. They do, they do conduct their rituals. And the fact that when I go to Saudi Arabia, I'm able to meet the Indonesians who actually practice certain uh, rituals that are associated with, with Habaibs or Sufism. It just shows that there is a community uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. Of course, Dr. Suwanto will be the best person to answer this because he's actually there. But it just makes me think you know, that there, there is the existence of such communities uh, in Saudi Arabia. So I, I would like to add a little bit about Nur Sahar. So um, um, about Habaib, this one is there are a lot of misconceptions. Many people think that um, um, Saudi hate of Habaib is, is misconceptions. It is my my perceptions is. In fact, um, of course, there are many. Uh, we do not call Habaib here. We we, we call the Sayyid or Sada or Sayyid or Ashraf. We do not call. Um, Habaib generally, but Sada group or Ashraf group is um, enormously here in Saudi. There are the many uh, Ashraf group. Uh, in fact, my my students also, uh, some of them also from the uh, Ashraf family, from the Ashraf group, from Habaib group. Many people think that the, the, the Saudi uh, the Saudi society or Saudi uh, Saudi government they, they do not like Habaib, and it is enormously wrong. It's not. It's not. It's, it's not true. What's happening is um, um, there, 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 there are many Abai group here. There are many. Um, they, they can perform their own um, uh, their own religious ritual. When we talk about Sada group, it could be Sunni. It could be. It could be Shi'i group. You know, there, there, there are many Sada group within within uh, within Shi'a community also. 
which is which is I know very well, and and, and I have make a connection with with, with some of them. Which is which is which is this is a wrong perception from from Indonesian's perspective. Yeah. So which is, um, but this is not the again. This is not the focus of 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 my book. So this is why I do not I do not discuss specifically on on the Sada um, um, religious group. Maybe people think that, that the Saudi the Saudi society um, uh, do not do not like Sada group because because looking at the historical path. Uh, historical part, but now everything changed. Everything enormously changed, enormously changed, as Pa uh, Nur Sahril mentioned, which is true um, about the rules of women, for example, in public things, is enormously changed, even in, in my university. In King Fahd University, was in the past, was only for male, only for now, it's beginning to embrace women. Female students, they accept female students, they accept female teachers, professors, um, scientists, so this is, is everything's changed. Everything and one thing that people that Indonesians in general think um, is that which is wrong. They they think that um, everything's about militancy and others always came always from Saudi, always from Saudi, which is actually not. Uh, many of them actually from Indo-Pakistan, for example, with alumni of the Obandi, for example, from Indo-Pakistan, they, they, they contributed to militancy in Indonesia, or maybe from Yemen, or maybe from Sudan. Maybe from other places, not necessarily from 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 Saudi Arabia, even from the West. Many conservative group, militant group, actually graduated from the Western um, academic institutions. So we have to think about this to change, to change our perspective, to change our uh, our mind that, that that militancy, conservatism is always connected to the, which is which is in fact in in reality is not. Looking at Indonesia, many conservative group actually in Indonesia has been has been trained in Indonesia, not trained in the Middle East, or has been trained in the West, not trained in the Middle East. <laughs> this is something something that we need to, to, to understand. There is a dynamics, there is dynamics and, um, um, uh, within, within, within this uh, uh, issue. Yeah? And, and in fact, not all, um, um, not all students, alumni from uh, Middle Eastern institutions become, become militant, become conservative. As I, as I mentioned um, um, in the book, a few, many examples of, of, of graduate alumni from, 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 from the Middle East, which is actually they become promoters of uh, moderations in, in Indonesia. That is Fauzan. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Sumanto, and thank you so much, Dr. Nusharil. Before we end, I think on the topic of Haba Ape. One more question, right? <laughs> About the youth, actually. Just a quick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, sorry, I forgot you haven't responded to the question. Please, Dr. Nushari. Thanks Please. for the question. I think uh, when we discuss about youth, uh, I think it's very dynamic. Singapore youth, yeah. Uh, after the 1970s, uh, there's a greater sense of religiosity happening across uh, society in Southeast Asia, and the youth are not excluded from this. Uh, but to say that there is one single unified youth uh, religiosity is also wrong. Um, uh, so, and, and, and apart from that, I think uh, based on our discussion today, it's not only Saudi Arabian Puritan kind of Islam that's affecting youths, um, especially in the age of social media, they're all exposed to all kinds of versions and orientations out there. Uh, there's a range and I think we must also understand certain changes that's happening in the community, particularly the rise of the middle class and accessibility. So not necessarily the Middle East is influencing our youths. There are also, as Dr. Sumanto mentioned, uh, West, 
Western preachers, and also in the region. Uh, uh, Singaporean yes. youths are also affected by what's happening in Malaysia and, and Indonesia. So I think uh, it's complex. Uh, we, we have to see uh, where the trend is heading. Yeah. Thanks, Fauzan. Thank you so much, Dr. Um, and Dr. Nusharil. Uh, and uh, just to pick up on the point about Habaib, uh, I think there is a very interesting book that was just recently published by uh, Princeton uh, University Press. Uh, it's, the title is What is Religious Authority Cultivating Islamic Communities in Indonesia by Ismail Fajri Alatas, uh, an anthropologist at NYU. So um, this book you know, traces the movements of Muslim saints and scholars from Yemen to Indonesia uh, and looks at how the rise of uh, Habaib uh, in the past and today has impacted on Indonesian society. So I think it's a very good book for us to, you know, um, read to, to understand better about uh, the question that uh, Steve Gaspers yes. posed to Dr. Sumanto just now. And uh, another note, uh, because I started off uh, our discussion today by mentioning Mona Abaza, who has informed uh, some mm -hmm. of our understanding of Islamic studies uh, in Indonesia, uh, I received news from actually one of the audiences that she has actually passed away yesterday. So uh, let's keep her in our thoughts uh, and our prayers. And uh, um, we, let, let's, let's pray that she, she rests in peace. So on that note, right, on the solemn note, uh, we shall end this. And I would like to thank Dr. Sumanto again and Dr. Nusharil for, for taking the time. And I think we had a very good discussion. And I uh, wish to see our participants again in our next episode or in our future events. Thank you so much and goodbye. Okay, thanks, Fauzan. Thank the Middle East Institute Thank you. for organizing Thank this you. again. Thank you.